Well, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. It's Advent season. And uh, as a church, we decided the way that we're going to navigate through the Advent season is we're going to unpack uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Christmas story begins in Luke chapter 2. Uh, and so Luke chapter 1, for the next four weeks, we're going to unpack um, little parts of it. And uh, what's incredible is you start reading uh, the Christmas story, at least for me, um, I was just... Uh, taken back at what a complex story it is, how weird it is, how it's just so jam-packed full of paradoxes. And, uh, and so that's what I thought, well, let's just look at that. Let's just, instead of like try to navigate and pretend they're not there, let's just look at some of these really weird and difficult paradoxes that happen within the Christmas story. And, uh, and to help us kind of put our, our brain around this, let's look at a definition. Paradox is this. It's a situation, a person or a thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. And a really simple example of this would be like a simple uh, situation that combines contradictory features or qualities would be Black Friday. Are any of you Black Friday shoppers? It's the most wonderful time of the year. We're gearing up to celebrate Christmas, to be with our friends and family, to be generous and kind and oh, hope and peace. And yet people are like beating each other up over getting the best flat screen TV. It is brutal. And you may not know this about me, but I love Black Friday. I've been a Black Friday person forever. Um, when it was originally Black Friday, like five o'clock in the morning Friday, old school Black Friday is how we did it. And now this newfangled thing, I don't get. But that's when I think of a paradox. I think it's this idea of Black Friday. There's on one hand, it's this, oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And yet we find ourselves just totally devolving into this weird animalistic thing. And uh, as I think about Christmas and the Christmas story, I think paradoxes are actually really helpful. Because what they do is there's these competing things, these competing realities, these competing truths. And instead of just having to simply just go, it's all this or it's all that. It's all right. It's all wrong. It's all good. It's all evil. It's all this or that. Like what happens when we do that, we get prideful and mean and we, stop, we start like just tromping all over other people. But if you live in paradoxes, if you live in this tension of how complex things are, of how complex Christianity is, how complex the Christmas story is, I think it compels us to kind of just take a step back, to be a little more calm, to be a little more humble, and to hold things a little bit more loosely to see what God have, might, might have for us. I mean, think of some of the things that both in, in Christendom and the Christian story, um, these paradoxes that we hold, that God is at work, like he's at work in Jerusalem, and he's at work in Nazareth, he ends up being at work in Judea and Samaria and to the whole world. The beginning of the Christmas story is a virgin will conceive. That Jesus is fully human. He's fully God. That Jesus is both our Lord and our Savior. He comes in full truth and in full grace. And in any one of those, people who kind of camp on one side or the other end up crushing other people on the other side or themselves, and they miss out on so much that God has for us. And so instead of trying to go, yes, it's all this or all that, this morning, we're going to unpack Luke chapter 1 and kind of see what are these um, uh, paradoxes that God might have for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to jump right in to the Christmas story. Hey, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, 
and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, for his kingdom will never end. Well, how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she um, who is said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Well, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, and may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and our gracious God, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that we would have the posture of Mary, that we would be open to you, to your word, to whatever instruction, encouragement, correction, care that you might have for us. May we recognize that you are the God most high, and we are simply your servant, and we are listening. Have your way with us this morning. Amen and amen. So this morning, we're going to look at four different paradoxes of the Christmas story. And the first one is this, that Jesus Christ, he's a descendant of both Joseph and of God. And if you think about this, this is really interesting about being a descendant. Um, we have our DNA, and our DNA basically wires us, hardwires us for being able to, be, to look a certain way, to have certain abilities. But then our family systems also set us up for success and sometimes failure as well. Um, if you think about your stature and your mannerisms, the things that you're good at, the, the, the abilities that you have, um, the privileges that you have, those all come from being a descendant from your family. So in my family, I have this mixed pedigree. On one side, I'm, I was born of this family of tiny Jewish people. My grandma, my dad, my aunt, they're all tiny little Jewish people. Would you say, Katie? And I'm like the jolly green giant. I'm 5'10", I'm average. But among my family, I am like the man. I feel so strong when I'm with them, you know? And, um, and I'm a descendant of them. And uh, because of, I'm a descendant from them, I also have this incredible value of education and the arts and things like that, right? And then on this side, I'm a descendant of my mom. And my mom comes from this family of ranchers from the Imperial Valley. And they're strong and they have big hands. And they're just these men. They're awesome. And, uh, and I'm tiny compared to them. I have like little knuckles, you know, compared to them. Um, but I got like kind of the best of both worlds. I got some of their height and some of their smarts and like together, like that's me, right? And so that DNA formed me. That family story, the good and the bad and the ugly of it all formed me. Well, Jesus has this really unique family tree as well. He's a descendant of Joseph and he's a descendant of God. And you can tell, you see right here in this passage in verse 32, it says that he will be great and he'll be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So David is King David of Israel. David was going to be the ruler of Israel and from him was going to be the king who was going to rule forevermore. And the Jewish people look to that prophecy and goes, okay, that's going to be the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to rule for all time. And that, that person had to come from the line of David. Well, Joseph is from the line of David. Because of Joseph's ancestry, he can trace it all the way back. And because of that, he actually has this very unique birthright. Joseph has this birthright of being a descendant of King David. And because he's a descendant of King David, Jesus now has access to this birthright to be a descendant of the king to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the king who's going to reign forevermore. How cool is that? But Joseph has a really unique birthright that's not as exciting. 
I like the birthright of being a descendant of David. But if you look in Luke chapter 3, you see the whole genealogy of Jesus. And it has Joseph and then all of his parents, all of his fathers. And you get all the way to, to David. And you're like, yes. But then it keeps going and it keeps going farther and farther back till it goes all the way back to Abraham. You're like, this is incredible. And then it goes all the way back, all the way back to Adam and then to God. See, Joseph's uh, birthright is not just that he's born the king, but he is born a descendant of Adam. And because he's a descendant of Adam, he actually has his birthright of death. How's that for good news today? In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains it like this. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people. So he's talking about Adam, right? Adam, uh, God made Adam and Eve. He said, you are my people. I love you together. You're, the, you're my image. And I'm going to be in relationship with you. You're going to care for the earth. You're going to care for each other. And I'm going to be my, your God. You're going to be my people. And that's how God set it up. It was going to be this beautiful thing. And then Adam and Eve were like, no, whatever. We want to do our own thing. We're glad that you're the king. We want to be the king. And they said, we'll be the king. Thanks for nothing. And they decided to do their own thing. And they broke relationship with God. And because they broke relationship with God, sin and rebellion and death and destruction came in. And the DNA of humanity has been changed forevermore. Everyone who's a human being right now has this DNA in us. We are sinful and broken and rebellious people. And so this one trespass, being a jerk, one time going, I want the apple. I don't know how that all worked out, but you know that, that's how it's sold. This one jerky thing ends up ruining all of humanity for all time. And so that's what Paul's saying. Just as this one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also the one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Talking about Jesus. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is why Christmas and Christianity and Jesus is such good news. All of human beings have this sin problem, this rebellion problem. And because of that, the wages of sin is death. That is the track we're on. That is the descendants that we're on. And Jesus is a descendant of Joseph. And in one hand, he has one foot in this pot of humanity. But Jesus isn't a descendant of Joseph. Because of Mary, um, Jesus is a descendant straight from God. In Romans, it says that he's the second Adam. So the first Adam brought death and destruction to all of humanity, and Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the Adam who's going to come and bring healing and righteousness and wholeness. This one's transgression ruined it for everybody. Jesus' one act of righteousness and obedience and his death on the cross and his forgiveness now covers all of our sin and changes all of us for all time. So Jesus, in this paradox, he's a descendant both of Joseph and of God. That's paradox number one. All right, paradox number two, that this kingdom of God is unlike any, any we've ever known. And here's the deal. All of us want to be in charge. All of us want to be the king. All of us want to rule some little part of the world. And there's this weird thing is, and if, if all of a sudden we can't rule that one little part of the world, then at least we want to be on the winning team. We don't want to be on the winning side. And uh, you see this in my favorite movie, Mean Girls, right? There's only like one, those three girls are the plastics. There's only one girl who's like the main bad girl, you know? But then all the other girls in the school are like, well, at least we just want to be on her team. We don't want to not be on her team, right? So we either want to be in charge, and if we can't be in charge, then we'll pick 
um, the lesser of two evils and will go and will at least be on the winning team. And you know this is true. As a diehard through and through, loves the 49ers with all my heart, and they're almost like the Cleveland Browns, all of these people in my life are all jumping on the Raiders bandwagon. And I mean, we love people who love the Raiders, but as a church, we can't love the Raiders, you know? Or, or, the, or the Cowboys, you know? Like you, as 49er fans, there's certain teams that you can't love. And all of a sudden, because I hate losing, I hate being on the losing side, I'm finding myself cheering for the Raiders. I'm cheering for the Cowboys. My dad would disown me. Because there's something about my humanity that wants to be on the winning team. I want to associate with winners. And it's in all of us. And so all of us, when, when this kingdom that God has, there's this idea of the kingdom of God is going to come. And when this prophecy came, I'm going to read this passage again. It says that he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. It was like, here it is, the prophecy, the man, the person who's going to finally crush our opponents. And we are going to be on the winning team finally. Finally. And the Jewish people have not been on the winning team for a long time. They're not under the occupation of the Roman Empire, and they've been crushing them, and they've been taxing them to death, and there's, there's fear and intimidation, and finally there's this prophecy of, yes, the winning team is coming. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's such good news. But I think for us, we need a little corrective when it comes to our theology of the kingdom of God. For, for a lot of my growing up, the idea of Christianity was you figure out who Jesus was, you're a sinner, you give your life to Jesus, you go to heaven, and then you can do whatever you want, but at least you have fire insurance and you go to heaven when you die. It's like, oh, that's so great. And thankfully, over the last decade or so, there's been this big, strong move that said, no, being a follower of Christ means that we are participants in the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven means that God has this thing. He's at work. He's doing things. He's ushering this new way of being human that's full of grace and mercy and righteousness and humility and justice, Right? And, and it was like, oh, this is so good. And we're leaning into it. And all of a sudden having going, oh, I just want to go to heaven when I die too. I get to be an active participant in this thing. It's super great. But what's happened is because we're human, because we want to be the king, I think, unfortunately, we've kind of also started thinking we are responsible for ushering in the kingdom of God. We are now responsible for being the people who are going to be the powerhouses and use power and leverage our influence and our stuff so that God's stuff can happen, right? That's how we, we, we put it, for God, but for us. And we end up being linked up with power. And we see this all the time, right? And it happens in political and financial worlds that we think it's for the kingdom of God. And what ends up happening is we get all wrapped up in these causes and we miss out on what God is actually doing. And every passage about the kingdom of God, it's like this passage of the mustard seed. It's this tiny little seed. It's this tiny little seed that grows into this gigantic, gigantic bush and even birds can come and land on it. And for us, I want to go, well, how? What do I do? What do I need to do? What's this, what, what do I need to clear out of the way so that this can happen? And I think I need to use my power, my, my privilege, my finances, my vote, my whatever. I think of that is on me because I want to help bring, bring about the kingdom of God. Well, we can see that the kingdom of God is really important. It's what Jesus teaches about. In the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so we should be partners in this thing called the kingdom of God. But what do we do? What do we leverage? How much power and influence do we leverage for these causes? And what I love about the mystery of Christianity and the mystery of following Jesus and the mystery of this thing called the kingdom of God, it's because we are not about causes. We cannot be about causes. Causes are what dehumanize people. And then we can end up crushing them. It's also in the ends justify the means because we are about this cause. 
and we are not about that. I love uh, Jesus. I mean, he just, he says some really hard stuff. Everyone always goes, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is so great. It's not great. It's like the worst and hardest sermon of all time. And he begins it with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the Biagi. This is the most famous passage of Scripture in the whole world. It's this incredible and it's beautiful. And the truth is, I don't want any part of it. I look at this and I go, God bless those people. I want to be about my rights, my power, my comfort, my status, and then I'll help people. That's what I want. But the kingdom of God honors these people. These are the people who sit at the seat of honor. These are the people at the great banquet table of God. These are the people who sit at the right and left hand of God and who enjoy his comfort and his presence and his honor. I sit at the very other end of the table. And so we think about how does this kingdom of God come? I think it has to come down to this idea that these people are the people who are seen and are honored. And if that is you, you need to know if you are mourning, if you are seeking, if you are meek, if you are struggling, if you are pure in heart, if you're trying your hardest for peace and making peace, you need to know that God sees you, he loves you, you are blessed. You are the person that's ushering in the kingdom of God. For people like me who want to steer clear from those people because they make Thanksgiving Day awkward, we have to see them. Not the cause, but them, the actual person. And when we usher in and bring what God's doing in us and through us to see the actual individual, the actual people, and we care for them, we love them, we minister to them, and the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of them, they become healed and cared for and whole, and they get to be used. And that is how the kingdom of God expands and expands. We cannot be about causes. And I know this is the truth because I drive past San Marin High School every day. And I hate those kids. I drive past them and I think, get out of the road. Quit jaywalking. Quit being so rude to the person at the market, right? Because as a cause, as high schoolers, as a cause, right, it's easy to just dehumanize them. They're just this faceless mob. But God has not called me to love the faceless mob of high schoolers. He hasn't called me to love, you know, the, the next generation. Those are good causes and those are nice things. But God has called me to love Connor and to love you, Haley, and to you, Jojo. You're my people. I love you guys. And I will jump in front of a bus for you guys because we're not about causes, right? It's a totally different thing. So think of like the cause that you love, the, the political cause you love, the theological cause you love the most and step back and think, who are the actual people that God has called you to love and to knit your hearts to and to care for? So that is unlike any kingdom we ever know. All right, two more quick ones and then we'll be all done. All right, it goes on. At the very end, Mary says, I am your servant. And what's so wild about the kingdom of God is that those who serve will be the greatest. We so want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest. I want some sort of status. And everything about the Christian story is that no, those who serve 
are the greatest. What a wild thing. I mean, for us it makes sense, but imagine being in first century Palestine where wealthy men held all the prestige and all the power, and here a woman, barely a woman, a girl who has no status, who has no place, who is common in every way. She's not even a mom yet. That's like her one place to have status in that context. Not even a mom yet. And Jesus comes to her. And I love it. It's common. She's a Nazarene. I love this idea of, throughout Scripture, right? Uh, in John chapter 1, Nathaniel is like, what even good can come from Nazareth? You know? And I'm like, why does everyone hate Nazareth? As Christians, we know Jesus is from Nazareth. We love that place. But they hated Nazareth because Jerusalem was the center. And then Galilee was like this distant, weird place. And then Nazareth was this tiny little town. It's like if you ever met someone from Willits, they're like, I'm from the Bay Area. And you're like, no, you're from Willits. You know, what can good can come from Willits? If you're from there, you know, God bless you. God's at work everywhere. But that's what it, but that's what it's like. Jesus, I mean, God, he, he comes to this tiny little place and he sees this servant and she just says, I'm your servant. And what's wild is Mary is the most revered woman in all of human history. In Christendom, for sure, in the Orthodox Church, in the Oriental Catholic Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Anglican Church, in the Lutheran Church, Mary is the highest saint. For those of us in the evangelical world, we, we look at Mary and we're like, oh, like she is this place of honor at the Christmas story that she is a servant of God. And in the Christian story, those who are the greatest are those who are served. James and John, when Jesus called them to be his disciples, you know, Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, like, I want in on the kingdom of God. Let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. That'll be great. We know it's a different kingdom, but even in that weird kingdom, we want to be in a seat of honor. And Jesus looks at them and goes, you guys are idiots. You don't even know what you're asking. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so for us, as we long, we want to be people of Jesus. We want to be about the Christmas story. We want to be about the kingdom of God. We have to realize that our place is humble and gentle servants. And it's going to feel like we're not going to get what we want. It's going to feel like we not get what we deserve. But that's not on us. God somehow works that out. And I'm pretty sure that Christians for the last 2,000 years worried more about loving and caring their individual neighbors and not fighting causes and not amassing the power for the kingdom people would have a totally different sense of who we are as a church. And here's the one last thing. We love Christmas. I don't know if you do. I love Christmas. We listen to Christmas music all the time. I love the baby Jesus. It's precious. It is beautiful. And having kids and the Christmas, the whole thing is precious. And I love that Jesus comes in this tiny little baby, in this tiny weird little part of the world, and has made it very clear that he is humble and gentle of heart, and everybody has access to him. It doesn't matter your race or your religion or your economic status or your gender. It does not, none of that matters. Jesus made it and said, listen, as loud as he possibly could, I have made a way for every single person. And he's a little baby. But Herod knew that this baby was going to grow up to be a man and he was going to be the king. That was going to go against the religious rulers, and he was going to go against the political rulers, and Jesus ended up being murdered because of that. And Herod knew, I'm the king. If I'm the king, there can't be this little king right here. And Herod did every single thing he could to make sure he was the king, and that little king had nothing for him. And most of us, I think, in neutral are that, right? Because we're descendants of Adam. We're rebellious people. We want to be the own king. 
And my hope and prayer for myself and maybe for you is that you would enjoy this last paradox, which is simply this, that those who want to save their life must lose it. The whole Christian story, the baby Jesus, it matters because Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again so that there would be a new descendants. People born of the second Adam, people who are whole and who are transformed and are new people and who are about new things. But that only happens when we take our crown and say, I'm no longer the king. It's no longer about my kingdom. And we set it over Jesus' feet and say, you are the king and you are the kingdom. And that's the reason why the whole world aren't Christians, because that is so hard. But that is the invitation for us this morning. For those of us who are already Christians and who know and love God, we need to re-again take our crowns off and put them before Jesus and say, you are the king. The things that you value, I value. The things that matter to you, matter to me. And for some of you who may have never done that, you're like been around the church, you've been a guest in God's house forever, and like, oh, this is so great. God's people are so great. I love God. And you are happy to be a guest forever and ever, and that is great. But if you want to be adopted in, to be a daughter and son of the King Most High, to have an apprenticeship, to do the family business of be expanding the, camp, uh, the kingdom of God, all it is is in your heart, in prayers, you're saying, this crown goes to you. All of my rebellion, all of my jerkiness, all of my garbage, all of that needs to be forgiven. And Jesus says, I know, and I've forgiven all of that. And that little transaction means that we go from one Adam full of death and destruction, to the new Adam, full of life and hope.